I think there's a big lesson there about you make some of these choices, which you're very, very lucky to. And you know, those choices can be the difference between climbing the right career hill or the totally wrong career hill. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Shriram Krishnan. Shriram is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, investing in early stage startups. He is also a social media product veteran who previously held leadership roles at Twitter, Snap, and Facebook. Along with his wife, Arthi, he hosts a good time show on Clubhouse, which covers interesting people in the world of technology, sports, and entertainment. He also publishes a newsletter called The Observer Effect with lunar guests like Toby Lutke, Daniel Eck, and Mark Andreessen. In this episode, we spoke with Sriram about how he navigated being a rebel in a conformist culture, what he learned working alongside Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, and why he believes creating content and building a personal brand online is an infinite game. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Across the Lines. I'm happy to have Sriram on their call today. Sriram, we've been really excited to have this conversation. Thank you so much for coming. One way that we love to start off our every single episode is by asking our guests what their favorite dish was growing up. So what was that for you? First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, huge, huge fan of what you're doing. We were just chatting you know, before we started recording this. And you know, I just think you folks are doing something really interesting. You had some amazing guests on and can't wait to see where you all take this. But thank you so much for having me on the show. This one is easy. And anybody who knows me in real life will know this, but I don't think I've ever spoken about it in public. So now I feel like, you know, now it's going to be Googleable, and everyone's going to bring this up forever. But I, I grew up in Chennai in South India and a very, very classic, almost stereotypical South Indian dish is what we would call back in South India, just having curd rice, but, you know, think of like yogurt mixed with uh, cooked white rice. And it usually goes with a side of, you know, pickles, uh, which is kind of like the spicy uh, pickle thing. And honestly, that was the staple for me growing up through my childhood. It's what my mom would pack and send me off to school with. And the truth is, I still eat it. We still have it like at least like once or twice a week. It's comfort food. It's like mac and cheese or going to mcdonald's and having a burger it is my comfort food so still my favorite food there are a bunch that. of south indians here going like oh my gosh yes i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> and everyone's being like what is this what is no <laughs> right I, I remember, like, so about a few years ago we had uh, at one of the previous companies i was working for we had a team offsite and everyone had had a cook a dish and I was so excited. I was like, first of all, my cooking abilities are incredibly limited, but I was very excited. I was like, I'm going to do this thing. And I brought it there and people like, wow, that was weird. Like this, and it did not go over well at all. So it might be an acquired taste, but there you go. Oh man, I would have loved to try that dish. I'm well, giving a, an instant thumbs down to the folks who didn't appreciate it as much. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, well, I would say, here's a plug. Uh, if you want the, I don't think I've ever talked about a restaurant on any sort of audio show before, but if you want a plug, right? Like there is a restaurant called Sarvana Bhavan. There's a 
branch in New York. There's one in Sunnyvale in the Bay Area. There's in London and Paris and much of as well. And it's kind of franchises of this very famous Chennai restaurant chain. And they have a really amazing story. But go there. And that's one of the best places to have South Indian food and go, you know, get yourself some food. Wow. Yeah. I've never had a two food recommendations on the show before. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Branching out. We'll have to include that as a recommendation in the show now. So we'll look up what that was uh, after the show. Sure. Tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in Chennai and your upbringing, kind of like the values that you were brought up with. And fast forward a bit for us too. You've obviously had a tremendous journey in your career and your personal life, immigrating to the U.S., how have some of those values perhaps carried over with you? And tell us also about some values you might have had to unlearn along the way of this journey. First of all, like this, is, this is one of these questions where when I think about it, uh, some of these things may seem obvious in retrospect. It's always a little bit weird to kind of look outside yourself and think about what were the values that you took for pretty much granted growing up, and but then you realize might have been foundational in how you've been shaped through life. Uh, so, so for the context, I grew up in Chennai. It's one of the four or five major Indian cities. It's in the South. If I had to kind of like describe it very quickly, it's one of the sleepier, large Indian cities. It's a very large metropolis, but it's not as known for, say, the entertainment industry as uh, Mumbai is or being the seat of government as Delhi is. So a little bit sleepier. In my world, you know, I grew up in what India would call a middle class or lower middle class family. My dad worked in insurance. My mom uh, took care of things at home and very stereotypical, you know, middle of the road Indian upbringing. And when I grew up, there was a lot of focus on academics. The role you were supposed to play was you went to school um, five days a week. You studied, you got good marks or, you know, as what we call grades over here. And you worked really hard for this one exam that happened when you were about 17 years old, which was kind of the final exam before you finished school. And this one exam, which happened over you know five days, was pretty much going to determine your life because that determined which school you got into and you know, and that determined essentially a future path. Uh, in a world where a lot of Indian marriages were arranged marriages, it might have just determined your marital prospects as well. So it was a high pressure situation. Uh, and so you would be, you'd be told, um, you know, since you're probably in like third or fourth grade that, okay, this is the only thing which matters. Like I have memories, uh, somewhat traumatic memories of like being in sixth or seventh grade and you would get your aunt or uncle come by and they would see him like, why aren't you studying? You know, you should be studying harder. So that was kind of the environment. I, I was very lucky because though that was sort of the overwhelming focus of having academics and, you know, getting good grades, you know, being really good at math, physics, uh, chemistry. My dad was a bit of a uh, rebel. He passed away in 2006, but when I grew up, he was a bit of a rebel. I think the world I grew up in was very much about being conformist. It was, it was very much about you're on these rails, you study, you work hard, you get into a good school, you get into an engineering degree or a law degree, or, you, you know, if you go into a medical school, you become a doctor. And that was the only acceptable path. You know, if you didn't have one of those paths, you're a failure in life. And, but my dad was very much a rebel. He had always had these aspirations of being a writer. He used to write these short stories and it, it never really worked out. But I think, and this is one of these things which kind of becomes much more apparent for me looking back. He sort of infused that slight rebelliousness in me and that slight uh, edge, that slight non-conformist, I'm not going to do the thing which everybody wants me to do. So, which I'll come back to. So, 
I finished school. I had reasonably good grades. You know, I'm not as good as my wife, Arthi, who was fantastic in school. What wound up happening was when I was in high school, I convinced my dad to buy me a PC. And that was a very big deal. Uh, it, con- it cost him like a year's paycheck. Uh, it was a long multi-year me having tears and, you know, lots of fights to kind of do it because he didn't, he, he, he really, you know, he didn't really understand what computers could do. He thought it was just some, you know, some fun toy that I would just use to play games on, but I wound up getting it and I would spend every single night learning how to write code. So I would go get all these used books uh, about how to write code in C and Visual Basic, how to spend how to write code. And then about a year later, I convinced him to get a dial-up internet connection which for anybody under the age of like maybe 30, have no idea what I'm talking about, but over the age of 35, you probably have the memories of your parents yelling at you for running up the phone bell and the little sound when your modem connects over 56 kbps. But you know, I, I, I got a Jalap internet connection. And what I realized was there is a world out there and I could go tap into that world. And maybe I was just a little, maybe I could be good at this. So though I was reasonable and decent at academics in school, I quickly intuited that I was above average and maybe really good at computers. And what I think I was very, very lucky to do in retrospect, and honestly, my career could have gone very differently if I hadn't, I just leaned into that intuitively. I just spent more time. I seeked out people who are good at computers. And if I hadn't done that, you know, I would not be in the technology industry and I would not be where I, uh, where I am today. Because, And I think there's a big lesson there about you make some of these choices, which you're very, very lucky to. And you know those choices can be the difference between climbing the right career hill or the totally wrong career hill. But I was very, very lucky, accidentally make the right choice. I follow my instinct there. Computers also, you know, I like to joke, the internet has been responsible for the most important thing in my life, where in 2002, a friend of ours wanted to build a website and he, uh, he didn't know how to write code. So he introduced the two nerdiest people he knew over Yahoo Messenger. And there was me and my now wife, Arthi. And we chatted for a year. Uh, we didn't know who each other were. We didn't know what we looked like. We didn't know what, how old we were. But we chatted for a year every single night. We became very close. And then we started dating two years later. And then we've been together ever since. So I like to joke that we met online, but there was no swiping right involved. Uh, and uh, a couple of years after that, I wrote a blog post. I, I was very active online. And you know, if there's one of the many lessons, if there's one takeaway for people listening here, I, I would say start writing online. It's, I think, a real superpower to build a brand and a piece uh, and a corpus of content online. It's led to probably most of my career opportunities and including the very job I hold now comes from writing online. But back in 2002, I wrote a blog post and there was a Microsoft executive who was traveling to India, uh, Soma Sager, who's now a partner at Madrona Ventures in Seattle. And they needed a student to come demo something on stage at a conference he was speaking in. But they didn't really have a good set of students who could do that. And somebody Googled or stumbled upon something I wrote and that wound up to me being flown out to Bangalore to do this for him. And that was a huge opportunity. And it's one of the things where he saw me, he saw Arthi, and he was like, well, why do you kids come work at Microsoft? And we were like, well, we would love to, but we just have no idea how to even contact you. And he said, well, we take care of that. So long story short, that wound up with us getting a job at Microsoft and in India. And you know, the rest is pretty much uh, history. So I think a few things I would say, uh, looking back, you know, one of the things I've really benefited from is we were very, very lucky to have a very stable, loving household. I'm a parent now. We're about to, you know, we have a two and a half year old daughter. And I realize now how hard it must have been for my parents who don't, who did not have the resources that I now have to basically do all the things, right? Like take me to school every single day, you know, make sure, you know, we were never 
felt lacking you know we would never we were definitely furthest from you know the people who are well to do in school but we never felt like we were lacking in resources or tools and they always made sure that you know if you had to go on a trip that we could figure out a way to do that uh, and obviously you know getting me my computer so there was such a level of stability and love in the household which i think you know i realize now that we a lot of us maybe from an asian bring take for granted but i maybe that's not very common uh, and i realize how lucky we were the second part of it was the intense focus on academics which is even though i hated it right like the focus on and the discipline of studying you know pushing yourself through going days and weeks of just preparing for this test and i would say like you know if i look at like what i did in my when i was age 17 and my 12th standard uh, what we call our 12th standard leaving exam it's going to think of a finishing exam i don't think there are many other things in life which i've done which have been as as high stakes as intense as high pressure of those five days uh, very few things like because if i if i'd done terribly my career would probably go in a different way and think of the inflection path at the age 17 it can start compounding over time probably nothing else has had high pressure which is why i think a lot of folks including me we sometimes wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night where you're dreaming you're back in uh, that time so but i think the level of discipline and rigor that you know it instilled upon you was very very critical it also gave you confidence that you could figure something out right you could put in the work you could probably work harder than everybody else and you could figure something out i think that was very very key there were a few things i think i would have to unlearn uh, where i think growing up and i think this is this used to be common in lots of indian companies there was a high premium on conformity there was a high premium on you were not a rebel you did not speak you know you were very respectful to your elders and then this we can we can spend hours talking about the you know sort of the social structure and you know the kind of cultural meaning behind that i you know i grew up in a world where you did not argue with somebody who was older than you or more senior than you and this led to a lot of problems with technology companies i remember when i was at microsoft there is be all these issues where the folks from the us uh, and the folks from india really not get along because what would happen is the folks from the us would have said hey can you folks do x and y and z there's this great book called the culture code which really talks a lot of this and you know and, and they would sort of expect pushback if it was wrong but the folks from india would not want to displease the folks from the us and they would just say yes and though it was not possible and until something would just blow up right and everyone would be just frustrated so i i, I think one thing which arthi and i you know really lucked out on we both were rebels in our own little way so we were always known as the people who didn't totally conform we always stood out in our own ways we were always a little loud we always had a little bit of a public brand we were the first to argue or disagree and it turns out that if you are a 21 year old and you disagree with a vp or an exec i once disagreed with steve balmer in a meeting and it, you catch people's attention and often in a good way uh, because in a world of conformity it can be really valuable to have somebody who does not think the same as everyone else and i'll say it, it all you know it's all easy now we're talking about it like 15 years later at the time we took a lot of heat you know because it's such a cultural premium on not standing out and here we were we would write these you know emails to bill gates which he once responded to which is awesome and we were doing all these things which is not kind of expected for like 22 year old like you know prod program managers at microsoft but i think you know in retrospect i think served us in great stead so those are i think some of the things but after 2005 2006 uh, we were at microsoft and they flew us to the us and uh, the rest is history 
I, I'm just digesting a lot of that story, Sharon. Thank you so much for going into, into your history, talking about your family, talking about those early influences, talking about your father, um, how that ended up relating to, to meeting Arthi and, and getting into the world of the internet, starting your career, et cetera. Like, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for just jumping off there. That, that's awesome. I think what would be interesting is, because you're already kind of getting there, is as you've moved forward in your career, you've been interacting with, you've emailed Bill Gates, uh, you stood up to, you stood up to Steve Ballmer in a meeting. I'm curious how all of these different values and ideals of, you know, not necessarily conforming to what people's expectations are of you, how did that start to relate as you move forward in your career? For example, like working with top leaders at Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, how did that end up um, kind of manifesting yourself when you started working? So the first thing I think we did and again, I, I, it's really hard to talk about this without sounding full of myself. It's great. You know, it's always easy to kind of sound wise when you say, well, I knew this. I had this amazing master plan and I started doing those things. I didn't. I was very lucky. Arti and I were very, very lucky. We had a lot of people who helped us and mentored us along the way. And so it's all sounds great in retrospect at the time. We did not know what we were doing. But I think the thing that we always try to do was go take risks at the time. And I think India has dramatically shifted since then. At the time, the classic career path was you join a big company. And in 2005, 2010, you know, what had happened was, you know, people, it was a rise of all the services companies, right? So you had Infosys, Accenture, CTS, but the, you know, the really cool jobs was if you got like Microsoft or Google, and that's not by the way shifted. If you're in India now, you obviously have these amazing Indian iconic, you know, product companies, which everybody wants to go work for or build a startup, which is amazing, which I'll get to later. But at the time that was the career path, but for Arthi and me, we were never really satisfied. And I think that may be another interesting thread to pull on because uh, we were very ambitious and we're not satisfied. So we had at Microsoft for a few, a couple of years in India. But we felt that all the great work at Microsoft was not happening in India, but it's happening in the US. And Microsoft India is amazing. And honestly, you know, I am forever grateful to Microsoft, you know, both the company, but also the folks in India, because without them, I would not be here. I would not be talking to you folks. We would be somewhere else. So hugely emotionally grateful for them. But after two years at Microsoft India, we were a little stagnant and we looked at what is happening in the US and we were like, hey, 95% of what Microsoft works on is in the US and it's not in India. And we left and that was not expected, not typical. And then we came to Microsoft in the US. We spent an amazing, I think, four years there in Seattle. I worked on what is now Windows Azure. Arthi worked on the Xbox. But after four years, we again felt that we really wanted to be a part of Silicon Valley. And at the time, you know, even at Microsoft, that was, I would say, a little frowned upon. I remember having this conversation with somebody very, very senior at Microsoft where they said, oh, you have to spend like 10 years in an industry before somebody would take you seriously. And, you know, you shouldn't switch jobs the first 10 years of your life, which I, looking back now, I think is kind of uh, ridiculous. Uh, and in, we were, but we were really worried when we left Microsoft because it's the first company, only company we'd ever really known. And so in 2013, uh, 2012, we actually flew down here and we said, okay, there are two of us. One of us should do the crazy startup and one of us should get a job which has a paycheck involved. Uh, this is, again, I remember talking about this with, for example, Arthi's parents and some of her family and the prevailing opinion is like, you folks are crazy. I mean, you're working at Microsoft. Everyone in India knows who Bill Gates is. Right? It's a brand icon. You know, why are you leaving? You know, what is this thing about doing a startup? It makes no sense. Again, this is something which I think was 10 years ago. I, from everything I hear, you know, entrepreneurship is now, everyone loves that. There are mainstream Bollywood movies where the hero is an entrepreneur. So if that is not an endorsement, I don't know what is. But at the time it was, we definitely got a lot of pushback and people were like, 
you folks just throwing away careers. Both, so both at home and at Microsoft, it was not the conformist, conventional thing to do. The conventional thing to do would have been, I was doing well in my career at Microsoft, to been go up to ranks, be a VP of product management at Microsoft and, you know, work on a bunch of things, which a lot of my peers have done and, you know, they've done really well, but we wanted something different. So we came here uh, to the Bay Area and I would say, you know, I was very lucky because I wound up in three iconic companies of our generation and I was able to work closely with three, I would say, of most interesting founders of the last 15, 20 years, if not more, uh, which is Mark Zuckerberg, Evan Spiegel, and Jack. I like to joke, by the way, that I'm the Indian person who did not make CEO at Twitter. It is my go-to line for the last couple of days, right? Uh, uh, the family WhatsApps. Can I just talk about this? Every Indian person you know, hates Parag Agarwal, who is a very good friend of mine. But Parag, we all hate you because you have now caused our WhatsApps to blow up because everyone wants to know, hey, you know, I, I don't know what take you're doing in the US, but look at this other guy, right? He's younger than you, same age as you, and he's now CEO of Twitter. And here you are. What is this? Andreessen, I can't even pronounce this thing. And you're you're what, like a banker? And uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, I've had that conversation a couple of times. Uh, and- <laughs> That's hilarious. I feel like I've seen so many of those memes floating around Twitter the past couple of days. Uh, I yes. think one was like, a, it was like a screenshot of a WhatsApp chat. And it was like, dad, look who just became the CEO of Twitter. And then you, yes, <laughs> you can also do that. You, yes. Uh, yes, uh, I, uh, I, I DM Parag and I said, as much as a lot of the Indian company is happy for him, we all hate you, Parag, we all hate you. There's also this amazing meme, which I saw on Twitter, which made me laugh, which said, uh, you either die as a founder or live old enough to see your company run by an Indian guy, which I thought was hilarious. So, but you know, seriously though, you know, I was very lucky to work with Jack very, very closely. And Mark and Jack are, are amazing founders in their own way. So going to your original question in a very roundabout way, Mark is probably the single best strategic thinker I have ever encountered. And one of the things I always tell people is over the last four or five years, as, as there have been more legal actions on Facebook, is you get to see a lot of Mark's writing and thinking in public. So I have a site called a collection of memos on my website, shiramk.com slash memos, where I collect a lot of like famous emails and memos over time. There's a lot of Mark's writing on it. Highly recommend that folks go check it out or go check out a lot of his writing because you will see that Mark has such a structured way of approaching any situation. For example, he's always going to ask you, um, okay, how is the world changing? How is Facebook or the company positioned in the way the world is changing? What do we need to do? What is our very, very long-term vision and goal? And then what are the pieces that we need to do to get there? And what Mark is really also good at is saying, okay, if you're going to do X, what are then the second order actions that might happen? And, and which I've never seen anybody really do. The other thing I've seen Mark really good at is he's one of the lowest ego people I had ever encountered. Uh, somebody who once worked with him told me this line, which really stuck with me. It's as if he woke up every single morning and he recomputed the state of the world. You know, let's say all biases and he was able to, from first principles, reconstitute what he believed to be true. And I think that is really, really important because I know work in a job where uh, more than a lot of other jobs, the quality of your decision-making really matters. Unlike my older job where, you know, I was shipping products all the time and I was making a lot of hires. When you're in VC, your job is to make very few, but extremely high impact, high quality decisions because they are one-way doors in the, in the Jeff Bezos sense of the word. Once we invest in a company, that is a bond for life. We are going to work with you for 
the next decade. We're going to be there for you. That's something we take very seriously. And you can't walk back the door. It's not a product you can unlaunch. It's not a, you know, a higher, you know, that you can kind of like unravel out of. That is such a deep relationship. So you have to think a lot about your decision making and your biases. And I think I learned a lot from Zuck where Mark would be the kind of person he would say, look, I thought this two years ago, but now I know I was wrong. And he set aside the ego to do that. The other thing I think Mark was very, very good at looking back now was when you walked into the room with him, he was very aware about just his power in the situation uh, where like you're walking in, he's one of the most famous people in technology world, one of the richest people in the world is very aware of things, but you always knew, you know, what was the, the, the logic that he was using the computer edition and he would let you challenge him and change his mind. And I think that's also really powerful. And honestly, it's not something I've seen a lot of, which is you go see a, a, a leader of a company and that leader tells you, I believe X because of, you know, ABC, right? Um, if you can prove ABC wrong, I will change my mind on X. And by the way, proving ABC wrong can come from any person. It can be an intern. It can be somebody just started yesterday. It can be a senior level exec. And I think that is so powerful because that leads to such deep intellectual honesty in decision-making uh, in ways that I haven't seen before. So anyway, so uh, I'm not sure whether it's everyone's experience at uh, Facebook. That is definitely my experience. And at least that's what I really took away from it. That was very interesting to me. And I learned a lot from that. Now, Jack and Twitter were extremely different. I would say Jack's superpower is his focus on simplicity. Like whenever you spoke to Jack, he was going to push you to reason from the simplest possible axioms. Uh, and by the way, that kind of shines through in a lot of his thinking, writing, work. I think it's all focused on simplicity. And that, I think, leads to a clarity of thought and decision-making which is often lacking in uh, technology companies. So I learned from Jack, just a focus on simplicity. And if you ever use any company or product that Jack has worked on, you can see it shine through. Like if you use any product from Square, you can see how simple it is because I think that all comes from Jack. The other thing I learned about Jack is he is the most transparent person I have ever met. I won't say this to a lot of people, but for Jack, I would say, whenever he writes something in public, it is almost always the entire truth. Because one of his beliefs is that people eventually find out the entire truth. You just might as well like talk about it in public anyway. So, and it's just truly really inspiring. And I think he he intends for Twitter to be one of the most transparent companies, which is which is why like you know everything, a lot of what they do is documented in public. And it's an aspirational goal. I think it would be hard for a lot of companies to achieve, but it's kind of inspiring. So both of them are very very different leaders, very different styles, very different strengths and weaknesses. But I've learned a lot from both of them in my own way. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sriram. Turning the spotlight back to you a bit, I want to loop back on a couple of things that I've noticed you brought up as recurring themes in what you've been mentioning. One is this idea of being a rebel against collectivism. And the way I think about following the collective, especially in your career, is that one of the important things that happens when you do that is that you limit your downside, right? You limit your risk, but inherently you also cap your upside. And the converse of that is by being a rebel, inherently you absorb some risk and some potential downside, be it reputational, be it career risk, XYZ risk, by breaking expectations going against the norm. And I think when it comes to breaking expectations, there's what you do as you as an individual agent, but there's also another factor of how are you perceived, especially going back to, you know, the theme of across the lines, being Asian American, being more junior or being XYZ identity. And I, I love for you to reflect a bit on 
the intersection of those and how you feel like it might have impacted and, and manifested in your career, especially in these early days when you were, you know, like a 22 year old at Microsoft proposing these wild ideas. You know, I'm sure there was a lot of upside from taking that risk, but there might have been some downside too. Like, how did that calculus mm -hmm. work in your head? And what kind of advice would you provide to folks in your audience who are seeking that courage to do the same? Good question. Uh, I would say a lot of this, it looks great in retrospect, but at the time it is not easy. For example, uh, I've always had a public brand in the sense of I've always been active on Twitter. I've always been active on a blog. And one of the perennial knocks against me when I was young in my career is, oh, Sriram is distracted. You know, he's doing all these other things. And there was this under this undertone. He's focused on his personal brand. And I think some of us do get that, you know, the moment we try and um, put ourselves out there. And by the way, there is also some level of, you know, privilege here. You know, for example, I've seen my wife, Arthi, you know, get a lot more heat for some things that I would do. And she would do the exact same thing and she get like a lot more criticism for it in the earlier stages of her uh, career. So there's definitely, you definitely take some heat, especially in some of these larger companies where there's a big focus on, you know, this is the career path that you should be on and you should be taking risk. But I think the beauty of our industry is technology is one of the best levers that you can ever run into. Uh, you know, a technology company is one where you can go from zero to, you know, create billions of dollars of value in like six months to a year. You can create something magical with, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of people can use. So the scale of the upside is so dramatic. So one is, if you just look at the calculus, as long as you're not doing something totally crazy, by the way, when I say, when I say I'm a rebel, it's very much within some guardrails. I mean, a lot of people are going to be listening to this who know me and they're like, wait, what do you mean? Sridham was like perfectly reasonable. Like uh, I was just the person who had the strongest opinions and was the first to comment on a doc or who would write the late night Saturday, you know, memos on what they think the new strategy should be. So the first thing is, you know, the upside is so huge. I think that you owe it to yourself. The second thing, and I think this is too, truly important, is it has to come from a good place. One of my beliefs is that human being can very quickly suss out intentions. We can very, very quickly when somebody's genuinely interested in us, genuinely interested in the company versus just trying to get themselves uh, ahead in their uh, career. And when we were at Microsoft, we really cared about Microsoft. We bled blue. We wore Microsoft swag all the time. You know, we, we, we really deeply cared about the, the company. And I think that that authenticity underpinning all of your actions really winds up helping. Because even if you're out there taking some risk where like, for example, you're speaking back to Microsoft exec, they kind of sense that you are coming from a good place of wanting the company to do well. And what I found over time is if you are authentic, and I honestly don't mean this to sound super frou-frou, and you know, if a bunch of people want to roll their eyes at it, I totally get where you're coming from, but I do mean this. If you're coming from a good place and have good intentions, these things tend to work out well for you. So one of the things I'm a big fan of is this concept of an infinite game, where everything that you do in life can either be a finite game or an infinite game. Finite games are like basketball, where you know it's like four quarters, you know, the team with the higher score wins. An infinite game is like your career. There is no prescribed scorecard. Uh, you keep doing things pretty much uh, forever and it keeps compounding. And one of the things I've found is I could get away with being myself and being a personality because, and I mean, I like to think so, is that I genuinely wanted other people to do well. I genuinely wanted the institutions I wanted to do well. So I think if my advice for folks here is, you know, if you can actually come from a good spot, 
those things that that benefit over time really really compounds on the other hand i think we can all sense it when we meet somebody and we feel they're not being authentic they're being the calculus of like they're kind of looking out for themselves i think we can all sense it on some primal level so uh, do the opposite of that your partnership relationship with your wife publicly is, is super interesting. And, and you've mentioned her throughout this entire episode. And, and like you just mentioned right now, can you just talk more about your relationship with her, how it's matured over time, specifically related to like the Good Time Show? And I'm just, it's, it's really awesome that you two are working together on this and would love to hear the context for that and any interesting stories of what it's like to be uh, building something like this with your partner. Uh, first of all, so it's kind of bizarre and surreal to say, you know, we're so public. We never really intended to be, and it kind of just kind of became a thing over uh, time. We are incredibly boring people. We haven't stepped out of our house in San Francisco for pretty much, I think, like two years now. So uh, it, it, it feels a bit bizarre to be, quote unquote, like so public out there. The Good Time Show came about somewhat of an accident where we, late last year, this was December 2020, you know, this was still not peak COVID, but the world hadn't really reopened yet. And it was holidays, so it was a bit slow. And we were just sitting at home and we were going, hey, we just bored, nothing's happening. On the other hand, Clubhouse, you know, had just blown up. You know, it had come out of nowhere. We've gone to the top of the app store. You know, it was really blowing up. And we said, look, why don't we just start doing something fun on it as an experiment? And we had grown up idolizing US talk shows, like, for example, Leno, Johnny Carson way, way back or in a more modern era, be like Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel. And we said, why don't we do some version of that? So we had no strategy, no idea. We started doing it for fun. And then a couple of weeks later, we had Elon Musk come on the show and it really blew up. And since then, we've been like really, really off to the races. We've always kind of been sad that we haven't had a chance to work together over the last 10 years or so professionally. So it's kind of, this not exactly the same, but it's kind of close. And I think that's been really fun. The second thing which has been like really, really fun is uh, how it is connected with people. And again, you know, people may roll their eyes, but about like once a week, I'll be walking on the road and somebody will come up to me and they'll say, hey, I was in the room when, you know, you had the show with Elon or, you know, with Zuck or Arthi will get a DM from Instagram saying like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, this, you know, is 23 year old like woman in like some part of India. And I didn't know all this was possible until I heard you. I worked in technology for 15 years and I've worked on products which have connected, you know, like hundreds of millions of people, but it's very, very different to have suddenly an intense personal connection with somebody. And that is very, very special. And we don't take that for granted at all. So for anybody listening who listened to the Good Times in any ways, thank you so much. We appreciate everybody here and we are very, very grateful. So uh, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. And one of the things that's so special about the Good Time Show that I think you've mentioned in some previous interviews is that there's actually quite a sizable audience of yours that's located in India and mm-hmm. almost looks up to you and Artsy as these role models for what they could be as well. Tell us about what that means to you personally. And before the show, before our recording today, we were talking briefly about this idea of exploring Asian American identity and how it's been a more recent journey for you. Do you feel like hosting the show and realizing that there's this massive group of people who really see you as a role model because of your identity? Do you feel like that's affected your thinking along that journey? I always hesitate to talk about this because words like role models feel so deep. And here I am, sort of nerdy tech person. And I, when I think of role models, you know, I think of, I don't know, sports figures or figures who are like 100x more accomplished than we are. And honestly, I still don't think we are role models. But I do think we now realize that there are a bunch of people who look at us and they say, okay, I now think there is a path possible, which I didn't know existed before. Like when we started doing the show, you know, we have like a strong network of 
friends and family in India. Uh, but we didn't start bringing up just with founders based in Silicon Valley. But over the last six months, we've done a lot with founders based in India. We had, for example, like a couple of weeks ago, we had Girish of Freshworks, who's from the same city we are in India. And that was amazing. Like, that's one of these stupid things because we can kind of do these nostalgic references. And we got so many messages and DMs and notes uh, because the episode from people who really had a, mean, um, a meaning for. I would say I'm still not exactly sure how to handle it. It does feel more of a responsibility now. So we do think about it. You know, we try and be helpful when somebody reaches out for advice to the extent um, that we can. Mostly, I think we just feel very, very lucky. You know, you don't expect to be in a situation like this at all. The thing which I, we try and do with the show and people ask us like, what do you think works? And it's kind of weird. It sounds so full of shit. If you say, well, this is why I think the show really works because you know, you're the one doing it. But I think one of the things that try and work is like, we try and make the guests feel as comfortable as possible. You know, one of the things we talk about is, you know, when somebody comes in, how do they get the feeling that this is going to be okay, that they're going to look good, that uh, they, they're going to be the best version of themselves. It's going to be okay. It's something I learned from, you know, an old Lakare interview. And that's what we aspire to. And I think what that does is, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while, you get this real moment of intimacy on the show. Where, for example, my, my favorite example is with Calvin Harris, when we had him on, you know, he started talking about uh, how he had this really deep medical condition when he was in teen years, and that led to his career in music. And there's this real, you know, moment, and you could feel it. And since Clubhouse is such a audio format, right, you're listening, you probably have your AirPods on, it feels like you are in the room with them and it is live. And there's just some indescribable feeling and connection that winds up happening. So uh, we are very grateful. We don't take it for granted at all. It always scares me when you know people think that, oh, you know, we want to do what you do. But if somebody is finding some meaning out of it, we are very, very thankful. And you know, hopefully we can try and do right by them. Speaking on behalf of the people that will be listening to this, uh, I, I really appreciate your humility. Um, that being said, you know, you are a really important role model for a lot of people. And one thing that uh, Angie and I hold really dearly to this podcast is, is the idea of you can't be what you can't see. And so there's a lot of people that are, whether they're in IIT Kanpur or whether they're growing up in Seattle, listening to your story. Um, and even if you may not think that you're a role model yourself, um, that, that may be how they're perceiving you. And, and like one story, like listening to you for one evening can like spur an idea in them that could lead them towards in a really incredible direction for their personal and professional life. As, as our last question through them, we like to ask, uh, what's one piece of contrarian advice that you'd like to give to our audience? So what would that be for you? The word contrarian, uh, I think the trick that Peter Thiel pulled when he started using this question was it really forces you to examine what is the world assumed to be true and get to a consensus on that. It's kind of, it's kind of this jujitsu move that you wind up pulling where you're like, well, what does everyone assume to be true? I think there are a couple of things I didn't really understand how important it was. And I kind of really think of a lot more important. It's kind of served me really, really well. The first one is leaning into your individual self online. So uh, in, uh, this can mean any number of ways. I think if somebody here in the early 20s listening to this, I think the, the number one piece of advice I would say is like, find a way just create any kind of content online. And you can write, you can post on Instagram, you can post on YouTube, find ways to share with the world. I think we're on this journey where the world is um, moving towards a lot more focus on individuals uh, over institutions. And it, that's happening in pretty much like every sphere of society. And if you're online and you're building an audience who trusts you and who kind of follows along with you, 
that is a real superpower. And that is one thing, by the way, it's an infinite game. If you start off in your early 20s, you have like 10 plus years. You have a lot of people here in a peer group have a lot of free time. People in their 40s do not have so much free time. So it's going to compound and it's going to become a massive asset for you. So the first one I would say is like build a online presence for yourself and share yourself because it does a few things. Number one is when somebody, when you do that, the best people in the world, the smartest people in the world, reach out to you. Like one of the, the best, one of the secret things that I want to benefiting from as I've written stuff online is you get founders or CEOs or even better, you know, amazing engineers are starting off their careers, reach out to you all the time. And in the job that I'm in, it's great when amazing engineers are reaching out to me, right? Because I'm in the job of like funding some of these people. And again, in the infinite game mechanism, these things really start compromising. So first I would say it's like, just write and have a presence online and it can be anything and you will find that it compounds over time. The second thing I would say is for folks listening in India and other parts of the world, I grew up in a world where you had to move to the US. The dream was you flew to Silicon Valley, you built a career here, and there's so much focus on how do we get here. I don't think that world exists anymore. Two reasons. One is India has an amazing startup ecosystem. You see all these amazing founders, you know, you see the Zomatos and the Freshworks and the Paytms and on and on and on. You have the whole ecosystem of VCs and angels and, you know, support structures. So you could have an amazing career just in India, anywhere you are. The second part of it is the world has just gone to the cloud where you can work on anything pretty much from anywhere. Like I work with a lot of crypto founders who I don't even know where they are in the world. And sometimes I don't even know who, what the real names are. And, and that's just totally fine. So uh, I don't know if this is country and advice, but you don't, you may not need to come to Silicon Valley anymore. You can just, you know, be as successful from wherever you are in the world. You can harness talent from anywhere, anywhere in the world at all. So I think that's the other thing that I uh, tell people these days. Shriam, I know we're coming up at the end of our time here, but this has been such an incredible conversation and we are so incredibly grateful that you came on to the show to speak with us. So thank you so much. Oh my gosh. First of all, thank you for everything you're doing with the show and uh, thank you for having me. Honestly, when I came in, I was not sure. I was like, I haven't even thought deeply about these topics, but you had me like introspect live and I'm really appreciative of that. But mostly thank you for all the work you're doing and to everyone listening. Uh, and if I can ever help with anything, one of the things I tell people is just always reach out. So just ping me, DM me, SriramK at Twitter, SriramK at A6NZ.com, smoke signals, flares, you know, I take everything, but this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.